But first, uh, Brukiedo. Brukiedo. We've got the warm winter. It is the uh, Christmas ale packed with the spices of the holidays. Cinnamon, ginger, orange, and lemon peel, and a sleigh load of honey. A beer that's loaded with holiday cheer. An ABV of 8.2 and an IBU of 25. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh, cheers. I confess to having this before, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it does have, as I'm pouring it, it has a very nice amber color. It's not your typical Christmas ale. Like, I feel like Christmas ale, it's, typically, you might know what to expect, and you don't know what to expect. <laughs> yeah, it's... I love the can, too. Look at that. I love the can. I apologize for that drippage. <laughs> <laughs> mm, it's, uh... has a nice, gentle nose to it. I smell the ginger. That ginger honey combination. Oh, that's, that's what really gets you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. It, it, it's definitely punctuated with uh, with. I can taste the ginger. I can taste the honey, and that's a nice combination right there. Yeah, this is definitely more of your Christmas ale. It's much sure. brighter than a Christmas, <laughs> yeah. like a you know, like I, I always think a Great Lakes Christmas ale around here. But I feel like that's kind of like a lot of Christmas ales if I've ever been in you know, some other town around Christmas. But this is like much brighter than that because of that honey and ginger. You know, and on the, on the second taste through, I'm catching more of the uh, more of the cinnamon and the lemon peel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I always want to be the one who like actually picks that out ahead That's of time. Good. Like I don't know it until you mention. It. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I, there's cinnamon. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I didn't catch it till the second taste. That's good. It's really good. Good job, brew kettle. <laughs> um, to go back to your point. What I, I found really fascinating because, like, so let, let's take C.S. Lewis, like you were mentioning earlier. Yep. C.S. Lewis actually punctuates it pretty hard. But if you go into uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, I think his is on a whole other level because he punctuates his philosophy without even talking about it. It's so full of symbolism. It, it, and it's it's not even overt. I mean, and it's it's punctuated beautifully, but in everything, from the architecture to the way that they say things to the way the events happen. Um, even even Tolkien himself said that the theology is in the symbolism of the story and the way it's told. Absolutely, so. I agree with you totally. I always thought Tolkien is a better storyteller than Lewis. I love Lewis. In fact, but Lewis has the magic of making theology interesting like nobody else has. Oh, I agree. Mm-hmm. So I've always considered, yeah, I've always considered um, Tolkien a better uh, incarnate. I call it incarnation. In other words, he incarnates his theology into the storytelling m- superior to, to uh, Lewis. Uh, he's a better storyteller. Uh, but Lewis was a better theologian and he was better at transferring those abstract concepts when he did. Hmm. Yet, I also had the same experience Lewis had because Lewis, go, you know, the first, whatever, the first half of his academic life was the abstract theology. And, and then he had this transformation, transforming moment when he sort of had this experience of realizing the limits of rationality and reason. And he started to focus more on fiction and the narrative. And that's when he, you know, wrote the Chronicles and such. And I had that own, own, that experience in my own life too, so um, I I understand that that notion. But he was still not he wasn't as good of a storyteller. Bottom line, <laughs> <laughs> so I I agree with you on that one. 
Yeah, yeah, it's... And it, you know what, I gotta say, I gotta put in good word for you Catholics, you know. It doesn't surprise me that Catholics are better storytellers in, in, in some time <laughs> periods and in some ways than Protestants can be. Now, I'm not saying that you beat us all the time, but you often do, and... Um, You're here. I think a classic... <laughs> yeah, classic example is, you know, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Yes. No Protestant would have made that movie because they didn't under They don't tend to understand the notion of incarnational theology like like a cat good catholic does you know mm. and um mm -hmm. uh well not incarnational theology i mean of course protestants understand the theology but they don't understand the the they don't understand the in the Im imagery of it the the uh the power of the imagery because mm. you know you guys have icons and all that kind of stuff and you have that whole you have much more uh, tangible experiential oriented religion, which of course there are Protestant critiques of that, that I wouldn't deny. And I, I you know, but as Protestant, I see the weaknesses, but, but I can also objectively say, yeah, but, but you guys, you know, have something that the Protestants lacked, which was that, that appreciation of imagery. And there's much of a reject, you know, the Protestant uh, history has a, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, tends to reject imagery and imagination because it's fearful of it, you know? Yeah. And I don't think that's as true now. Um, I think that a lot of us Protestants have <laughs> come up and started to realize that, you know, so we're, we're behind you by, by a, you know, a couple hundred years. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's so I, I argued that about Passion of Christ that, you know, in fact, Protestant pastors were the ones who were like, I always bring up this example, but it just tip it just embodies my big complaint about the weakness of the evangelical world and the Protestant world, and that is they'd watch the pro the uh, they were giving advice to Gibson because he was asking for it about the movie Passion of the Christ, and they would say, "Oh, it was great at the end, but can you put up John three sixteen at the end so it <laughs> clarifies it for everybody?" As if the gospel wasn't incarnate in the story, you know. Right. So this, but but here the, there's the Protestant need to have verbalization and abstraction. We've got to say it in words or they're not going to communicate the truth of it. Uh. Now, there is power in words, obviously, and Protestants have a great history of preaching, you know, that, that I think can outshine a lot of the Roman Catholics. But but the the weakness was that that they rejected Im imagery altogether. They threw the baby out with the bathwater, at least mm. in the Reformation, and then it had impact on the rest of the history. And only now are we finally extricating ourselves from that and embracing the imagination in our faith um, that you Roman Catholic brothers never lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, the cool thing is, is they're saying. Um, I read. A, I was reading a a pure uh, Pew uh, research uh, journal, and uh, they were going through and chronicling how uh, slowly over time Protestants and, uh, and and Roman Catholics are slowly coming at, at an apex right now, where there's more and more that's in that's common, and less and less that's not common. So, yeah, yeah. which is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why we do things like this We're not podcast. Each other. It's true. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's a good start, right? <laughs> that's a great advancement, huh? We're, in the same room. We're not killing each other. There's so many other groups we can be more angry with than each other. <laughs> no. We actually have a podcast together. <laughs> yeah, you know. No, really, honestly, that's great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 fun and that's why I always tell people. Um, because uh, unfortunately I have, uh, a lot of Protestants that, uh, <laughs> uh, 
that demean me. <laughs> Especially here at Cleveland. A uh, couple in particular who straight up told me I'm satanic, but <laughs> it's like, really? dude, dude. I didn't mean it. I had too much to yeah. drink that night. <laughs> I'm a heretic, too, for my, my, some of my beliefs, so I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's like... I, I like that that we're getting to a point where where we can sit down and have conversations about this and find out where our common viewpoints are, because yeah. it, it all goes back to the first century church. It all goes back. Everything comes from that, and and ultimately it all comes out of even a more ancient Jewish mindset. So yeah. In fact, today I was because uh, I'm also I'm a, a PSR teacher for our parish as well. Uh, I teach the the Bible study group, and uh, I was going through, and I highlighted inside uh, Exodus. Oh, was it seventeen or eighteen? There's a passage in Exodus. It's either seventeen or eighteen that that it, it's actually explaining the first time in the Bible, the Passover. But the really interesting thing is, is the verbiage is almost identical to how the Catholics believe the Eucharist is supposed to be treated. Interesting. And, yeah, it's 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 just it's stark. It's amazing, you know, because as it goes through, like it says that the the Jew shall not share the Passover lamb or the meal with anybody who is not part of their group or the family group. They can join, but they have to come over and they have to be circumcised and they have to join. Um, you cannot take it outside of the building, outside, outside of the house. It's like everything, all the verbiage is almost identi- identical to how we believe still today. So it's, mm. yeah. It, it, it's, it's so, again, it all correlates back to the, the ancient Jewish mindset. Yeah, and I think that that's probably, like for me personally, it's the exploration of narrative and storytelling that has humbled me, humbled my theology, quite frankly, and has made me much more open to, uh, to, you know, you could call it maybe an ecumenical approach, you know, I mean, I still have my disagreements and I could, you know, if we got into, if we decided to have a, 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 you know, a a frank theological disputation or (laughs) argument, you know, I would be happy to do so, but I don't necessarily see the need to do it um, unless Mm. it's absolutely necessary in certain circumstances, you know what I mean? But but my point is, is that the storytelling and narrative has helped me to understand the notion of incarnation and imagination. And imagination is the root word of image, imagery, to mm. appreciate the notion of imagery and how um, how the how art and imagination actually can be incorporated into your faith. And, and, and in so doing, that's what's made me feel at least more of a kinship with Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics and such, you know, at least finding, like you said, it, it has helped me find some of those points of agreement that I was not aware of and that I needed to be, you know, so that's been a good thing. Yeah. And, and again, it's a fun thing. Yeah. Uh, Gumby, go ahead. Here yeah, is. no, I got a question for you. Now that you said image and imagination, <clears throat> are you familiar with Douglas Hamp, cor- uh, Corruption of the Image? Yes. So my yes. question is for you, with all your research into the you know, the watchers and the fallen, do you feel like, you know, the goal was, and not even necessarily with how you wrote your books, but was the goal to corrupt the image or to make sure that, you know, the DNA, the bloodline to Christ just never happened? Ah, right. Yeah. That's a 
That's a good question that I'm not, you know, I don't have like a uh, firm conviction specifically. My current notion or understanding was, is definitely the, that it made sense. It makes sense to me, at least narratively, mm-hmm. that they're trying to stop the bloodline of Christ. Absolutely. They're trying to corrupt the bloodline okay. to stop the Christ from being able to come. Yeah. Because yeah. that makes, that makes narrative sense to me. Well, mm-hmm. then that's why they're the enemy. And that's why. And it would make sense they're trying to stop Messiah from being born because Messiah was the one that would bring about the defeat of the serpent. So why wouldn't he try to not allow <laughs> to corrupt them so thoroughly yeah. that 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 a Messiah could not be born because of that? That mm-hmm. makes sense to me narratively. And okay. I do I do hold to that. In terms of corrupting the image itself of mankind, I'm not to be honest, I read that book years ago and I've read so much stuff on it. I don't remember what unique specifics he has, but uh, is if you can clarify my memory for me so is he saying that it, the the idea of mating human and angels was to corrupt human image too the that you know it's God's been a while yeah it's been a while since i read that book too it, but that yeah. seems like that was the implication that i got yeah and it makes sense theologically um practically how could they i don't know how they do that of all humanity but it, mm-hmm. uh, theologically yes and here's why though I think a lot of Genesis one, you know, Genesis one to eleven. I think a lot of that was written or at least majorly edited much later in in history. Um, and in other words, after Babylon, after when they were in exile in Babylon, um, I believe Moses wrote mo- much of the first five books. But what fine what the final form takes is is a lot of scholarship. Even conservative scholarship is willing to admit that there's a lot of editing that took place and such. Mm. And so I think there's a lot of post-Babylonian influence on Genesis. And I'm, I'm saying that because um, post a lot of it's written post-Canaan. Uh, and I think I see a theological stress in Genesis 1, in Genesis 1 up to 6 on the notion of separation and mm. separation is the essence of the of of Israel in Canaan right god god gives the law to separate israel right don't do this don't do that because don't be like the canaanites why because i want to separate you i want to separate you mm-hmm. holiness is not this i'm righteous and good and you're not no it's like i need to be different cuz god god wants me to be his inheritance not the the inheritance of the gentiles right so holiness or separation unto Yahweh is a major element of, I think, the Pentateuch. And therefore, when you re- I think one of the purposes of Genesis, the theological purposes of Genesis 1 through 3, uh, and even up to 11, is to stress holiness. So, so when God creates, what does he do? He separates the land from the sea, the earth from the sky, he separates male from female. So separation, holiness, is a major theological emphasis. Yeah. And so therefore, the the story of the sons of God coming and mating with women is a violation of the right. separation of the heavenly mm-hmm. earthly divide. Right. So that's what I believe is the theological uh story. I think that's what the theological intent of what the scripture is saying. Mm. That's how I see. Could they have literally corrupted humanity to such a degree? I don't know, but I mean, it makes theological sense that that's 
they're violating holiness and separation. And that makes a lot of sense within the paradigm of uh, Israel with the law, you know? Yeah. Okay. I I do want to differentiate from his idea because he also goes off on a a futuristic tangent of how that leads to the alien seed and all of that as well. Douglas Hamp? Yeah. Really? Yeah, Yeah. the the alien agenda. And I don't Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't believe in any of that. No, I don't either. Which I, I get. I, I'm gonna plug. I'm gonna plug your your uh, apocalypse series. In fact, uh, I, I I have to say this uh, today in uh, in our parish during coffee hour. I, I actually plugged your uh, your apocalypse series. because so, <laughs> they're so they're so well written and and they take such such beautiful parts of history and and you paint a beautiful narrative, not just um, of the prophecies themselves in context. But you put a nice cultural overtone of what's happening during the time period. Mm. So yeah, and I, you know, I find that prophecy, you know, the end, last days prophecy, and which, of course, what you're pointing to is, you know, my my view is that a lot of what many Christians believe are last days of the earth in our near future. Mm-hmm. I believe theologically the last days were not the last days of earth in our future. It was the last days of the old covenant. So it was that concept that they're dealing with very differently. But in the in the world of Bible prophecy in the end times, uh, <laughs> people hold their views so extremely yeah. that they just get a whiff of how different you are, and you're automatically a heretic, or at <laughs> least you're automatically, oh, I don't believe that, you're, you're anti-Semite, or something like that, you know? And, but I find that, you know, but telling my story and, and stressing, look, the story I'm telling in Chronicles of the Apocalypse is the origin story of the book of Revelation. And it is, historically speaking, I'm trying to tell that origin story because John was on Patmos in the first century, probably around the 60s, you know, there's whatever. And, uh, and Nero was persecuting Christians and all that. So that's how I go about it. Now, I just so happen that I think it so happens I think John's revelation was about their time period, not our future. Yeah. But they were it was relevant to his near future that occurred by AD 70. Now, that's so shocking to so many Christians that it's instantly heresy. Yeah. But the truth is, is that if I just say, well, look, this, you know, it, it's an origin story of the book of Revelation. No one's really done that before. So read it for that. And you, you don't have to agree with all the theology. And so I have found people contacting me that don't agree with the theology, but they're drawn in by the story. Because, and, and then I found other people who, like, they just can't get into the end times theology. And I don't blame a lot of people. It's just, it's just <laughs> so much to wade through and so much. It's, it's, and it's, it's not, it's complex. It's not simple. Theologians will admit to you it's not simple. And, and so who, who wants to put all that time and energy? I don't blame you for not wanting to. But, but if you love a good story you'll, and you read my Chronicles of the Apocalypse, You'll be able to uh, you'll be able to ingest a full paradigm of of eschatology about revelation and, and all that, uh, but you'll be entertained doing it and and you'll get it in a way that I think you you know the abstract theology sometimes can't capture you know. And I, I do like this mm. again. You put it in a very good historical setting, and the characters yeah. themselves. I love the way you embrace each one of their vocations. Because not only do you put them in a, in a historical context, but you vividly paint each one of their vocations. Amen. Amen. <laughs> because I, 
I truly value, you know, that, that scripture talks about. Now, this is the reformed part of me where it's like, you know, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the, the every little thing that you do, you know, if you're a plumber, if you're if you're cleaning, the, washing the dishes, you can do that to the glory of God. But we have tend to have the secular, uh, secular, sacred dichotomy, you know, Francis Schaeffer used to call that, where we think, well, these things in life are secular, washing the dishes, doing my job making money but the 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 sacred things are going to reading the bible going to church and you know that worshiping god but really the bible you know or, or i think the best paradigm is understanding no all of life is an expression of worship to god even washing the dishes and doing your job and i each person has to discover <clears throat> differently how they how what that means to them but yeah. but you can glorify god by being the best best plumber you could possibly be or the janitor of the church as much as any pastor, and it really, and I'm not just saying this, like, no, really, that church janitor is as much honored by God as the pastor, because sure. he's, he's serving him in that capacity, you know, and understanding that is, is, is what helped me to approach my writing in such a way that I really want to value every, every character you want even the characters who are bad guys or villains. You know, you you want to value them in their humanity and who they are and what they do. You know, and if if I'm if I'm addressing what you are talking, about, at least I think I am. Um, that's kind of how I'm seeing that. And something that uh, is connected to that is this notion of the villains and how, you know, I, I don't. I've learned a lot through storytelling, and one of the things I've learned about life through storytelling is to under have a more uh, I don't know how to put it, maybe a more empathetic understanding of those with whom I disagree mm-hmm. or the villains in my life. Right. And so when you, when you hear, you know, when you, and of course now we have big problems with disagreements are so polarized and so yeah. extreme that it's, we're, there's just so much problems going on. But when you when you have to tell a story, if you're going to tell a good story with a good villain, you've got to, you've got to, write that character from a sympathetic viewpoint or they're not going to be realistic it's going to be unbelievable it's like yeah oh, i don't you know that's not like that or you know there's no villain in the in history there's no evil person in history who with a few exceptions i'm sure uh who didn't think they were doing good yep. so their evil was twisted in their mind but it was twisted to justify being good whether it's genocide is good because i'm cleansing the human race of its bad components yeah. Now, obviously, to us, that's evil. But within the logic of the system of that person, if you understand them, you you realize that, no, that's how, he's justifying it. And by understanding that nature of our enemy is how we understand to how to truly fight evil. Because if you don't understand your enemy, you won't defeat him. And, and you'll be defeated by the very thing. You'll become the thing mm. you seek to defeat. Mm-hmm. And so one of my common themes throughout all my stories it's in Jezebel, it's in the Chronicles of the Apocalypse, is the struggle of what is justice and what is righteous violence? Because I believe that there is such a thing. I'm not a pacifist. I believe that there is righteous violence. Not all violence is justified, but there is, such as obviously self-defense, right? You know, so if someone's trying to kill you and your family, you can kill them. But, you know, obviously it's, it's much, it goes to be more complex than that. That's an easy thing. But what about if you're the army commander of Israel, but your king is becoming wicked and worshiping Baal? Then what do you do? Because, she, and you've got examples like David who said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to touch Saul. 
And uh, because even though Saul's evil, he's God's anointed. W what does that mean? Most people would never even care about thinking that through. Um, but there's also countervailing morals. My, so my point is, is that uh, to truly understand your enemies or the people you disagree with, you know, you have to be able to understand the world through their eyes. And when you seek to do that, I have to do that as a storyteller or my villain, my stories won't be interesting. My villains won't be interesting. Hmm. And uh, and I find every, in every villain I write, there's a piece or an element of who I am. And, and I basically look into my soul and hmm. I'm honest with my own flaws and, and evil nature. And by the grace of God, he works on me, but I can find those kernels of evil that's in all of us. And then I pull that out and I exaggerate it or whatever. I, I focus on it. And that's how I make my characters of villains. Um, but that's also how I, it helps me to become more understanding of those who I consider to be my enemies. Oh, that's great. So pray, pray for your enemies. So he meant that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I fail all the time, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean. But I'm working on it. Yeah, it's funny you say that because my daughter, she was doing a, uh, a book report. Well, actually, it was, uh, it was for history. And she said, I don't know how to write this. And my advice to her, I said, listen, all you have to remember is that the villain is the hero of his own story. Amen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And tell it from their perspective, and then you won't. You know, making out. The, well, this is why uh, a lot of bad storytelling suffers from, you know, bigotry and and uh, you know, like let me give an example, like a Handmaid's Tale. You know, that's a big, real hot <laughs> right now with the secular world, Handmaid's Tale, and it's it's you know, what would happen if Christians got in control of the of the government and they wanted to establish a theocracy? Well, they would kill all the, they would enslave all the women to their sexual satisfaction and birthing babies. And they would keep them barefoot and pregnant, and they would kill all the all the all the gays and all this kind of stuff. It's like it's so ridiculous that I honestly, you know, um, it's like this is this is not understanding your enemy, you know. Yeah. Um, but when I when I was writing Jezebel, you know, I was kind of proud of the fact that my editor, the, she at first she was she 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 had her own preconception of Jezebel, you know, like we talked mm. about in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And at first she reacted like, you know, you're making her look too good, like <laughs> you know, kind of like. That's good. I'm glad she's because yes, I wanted to tell that her story, you know, through her eyes, and and of course, as time goes on and characters develop, her character arc becomes more evil and more outwardly evil. But it begins from this. It begins from this pression. Jezebel does not come into Israel thinking, ah ha ha, I hate Yahweh and I want to kill Israelites and bring Baal worship to no. What I depict her as, and I think this is actually historically accurate, Israel is a is a uh, a rural agricultural uh, culture, right? And they're like they're they're basically um, you know early I I I Iron Age, right? So, and they're a warrior culture, so they're not as advanced or sophisticated as Tyre. Tyre is like a cosmopolitan city that's trading with all the world. They're wealthy. It's like, you know, L.A. or New York, you know, and 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 of course they've got, you know, more beautiful buildings and all this stuff. But they're also more cultured, more sophisticated. Um, of course, you know, from a, an, another perspective, you could argue, as we'd argue now about New York and Los Angeles, there's also brought in a lot of corruption and idolatry. But the point is, is that Jezebel sees Israel as, oh, these poor, pathetic monotheists. They don't realize the glory of Baal, the riches and wealth. Look at how, you know, they're full of, they're impoverished. 
I can bring sophistication, I can bring culture and wealth, you know, and it's very much this same paradigm that what, what goes on with today's big city versus the rural. That's one of my themes in the book is through my whole series is rural versus city and this mentality. And so she comes in thinking, I want to make Israel better, more sophisticated, because when you worship more gods, you have more access to more powers and such like that, you know? Hmm. So you, you know, and I take it from her perspective, you know, and I, I accept it as true when I'm writing her view, you know? And, and that's, it, like I said, it's actually a, when you, when you're writing villains, if you're doing it well, it's, it's a, you learn a lot about life from it. And you really do. It's a, it's a big fresh air in, in, in just thinking of a lot of Christian storytelling. I'm thinking mostly of, of like a lot of Christian movies. Sometimes like we understand it as Christians when we have a villain who has like simple animus against Christianity or animus yeah. against God. And it totally falls flat with the general audience. They're like, why are they going against you again? Like just out of yeah. spite. Um, and I, you know, yeah. I just I think of a number of movies that have done that. It's it's really refreshing to see you diving into that. And I, I think that just it brings a lot of value to it makes it makes people who might not take value and it might might dismiss it because it does have Christian implications. Take a second look. Yeah. This is this is kind of a, a stupid example, but um, <laughs> I'm thinking back to uh, you know the paragon of, of high media, the Gilmore Girls. I don't know if anybody's ever watched that, but my wife is obsessed about it, and so I've always <laughs> sat along with her, watched it, and. You know, it's got the three generations. It's got the younger one. It's got the mom and it's got the grandma. And when we watched it in our early 20s, we took the perspective of the girl in high school. And then when we watched it like 10 years later, all of a sudden we were thinking like the mom. And then we're just wondering if in like 15 or 20 years, if we're going to be thinking about the grandma, who if anybody is actually most likely casted as the villain in the story. And um, the, the ability to do that, like it's just like, you know, not only would you catch more people on the first time through who might not who might dismiss the art, but you might catch the same people three times through who think about those people in, in three different ways. Absolutely. That's and what you're defining is the difference between good art versus propaganda. Mm -hmm. Propaganda is is a singular viewpoint. So like Handmaid's Tale is propaganda. <clears throat> it's it only sees Christians as well. They're just evil people who want to control and, and hurt people. It's like. No, there's nobody is like that. There's a reason why they do it, and you've got to understand them. And so, if you just portray them, I'm just they're just doing it because they're bigots. Well, then that's bigotry <laughs> itself, right? right that's yeah. the essence of bigotry. But what you're describing is, and and by the way, that's that's the that is the definition of good, the, of good art and good storytelling is that you accurate even look every story is going to have a point of view. You can't escape that. Right. It's inescapable. There's no such thing as oh, it's just objective and. I take no stance. No, that's not true. Uh, but if 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 you're portraying all sides as fair as possible, and the goal is seek to portray the best of the of all sides. So, like even mm. in my enemy's view, I I'm not going to make a cardboard caricature who makes the worst arguments or whatever. You know, I'm going to try to have them the best of their arguments, the best of what they can be in their viewpoint. You know, and that that's going to be the stuff that is 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 um resonates and lasts for a long time. If I can uh, toot my own horn on this one, <laughs> um, I'm also a screenwriter. And my first movie that I made years and years ago, it's still great though. And it's now on Amazon for uh, free Amazon Prime. I recommend you watch it called To End All Wars, starring Kiefer Sutherland. It's a prisoner of war story. And it's a true story based on allied prisoners of war 
under the Japanese in World War II. Uh, the Allied prisoners of war were taken to uh, Burma, <clears throat> Thailand, and they were forced to build a railroad for the, for the Japanese um, while they were doing it as slave labor. And so my story tells the, their journey of, of struggling with that and actually how, um, actually how Christianity came into the prisoner camp and changed their lives. Kiefer Sutherland, Mark Strong is in it, uh, James Cosmo, a lot of guys who, who are more known now, English actors and such. But um, th- what was the greatest honor was that the, the villains in the story are the Japanese, right? But I, I wanted to be true to them and, and find the truthful honorness in them, even if I disagreed with their worldview. Yeah. And so, in other words, if you, if, you, if you boil it down, you've got West versus East, East and West, right? And the Eastern view is collectivist. The individual dissolves into the collective. So therefore, individuals are, don't have rights. But the, the Western view is more individualistic. But in that case, the individuals have trouble finding community and finding unity. So I struggle with both sides in the story. And I tried to be true to them, even though, you know, in the end, the Jap- Japanese are villains of the story. But anyway, my point was, was I was so proud to hear that the Japanese film uh, distributor uh, was willing to distribute the film. And huh. they said the reason wow. why was because, you know, I that I I showed actually one of the chief villains of the story. I actually showed him as a man of great honor. And hmm. um, and even though he's brutal and and he's a bad guy. There is a sense of honor to what he's doing if you if you understand his system, yeah. and even if you disagree with it. So I was so right. fair to them that they were, that the Japanese themselves were willing to distribute the film, and that's a sign of okay, this isn't propaganda. This is good art. It's truthful, and it's truthful to all views, even though it does have a specific worldview that it's communicating in the end. Mm. That's good. That's awesome. awesome. That's really awesome. So balanced. Go, go watch it. We have <laughs> to end all wars on Amazon Prime, starring Kiefer Sutherland. One oh. of his thrills ever, honestly. And I, yeah. I will put that in my watch list because I'm a huge Amazon Prime user. So I will put that in my watch list. I'm a list. huge Kiefer Sutherland fan, so I'll put it in my watch <laughs> list too. Even though I'm not, I don't have Amazon Prime, I will find a way. <laughs> you, will, you will not regret it. Uh, it's a couple bucks to rent. Yeah, you will I not can, regret it. Really, I, I can I, handle I, that. But hate to boast, but but that balance that you maintain throughout your writing, and you know, yeah, it just doesn't seem like such of a value these days in our society here in the <laughs> West. I agree. Right, propaganda cool. is the rule. Yeah, yeah. Like it's all extremism and, and propaganda and it, accusations of exactly of evil on both sides. If you're not on one side or the other, you're hated in the middle. You know. To, yeah. To to make a point, the um, I, I was I, I read an article by uh, uh Robert Barron. He's uh, uh, he's a bishop, but I he's deeply philosophical. He's always going over um Western philosophy. He's uh, Aristotelian uh, philosophy. Uh, he's always going across, you know, the deep Western philosophers. So, and me being deeply philosophical, I I, I love reading his stuff. Right. So, <laughs> um, well, he was going over, and he said the most religious TV show was Vikings. I said, get out of here. <laughs> yeah. And and so I and so yeah. I went and I watched all the seasons of Vikings. And it's remarkable because there are no heroes and there are no villains. It's just everything is painted plainly and everybody is a hero and everybody's a villain. 
<laughs> so it's, yeah, and in a sense that 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 you know does uh, support original sin, you know that notion, and there's a fairness to it. Now, I I also watch the series, but I and when uh, uh, what's the guy Rathgar? What's his name? No, Ragnar. The, Ragnar. Yeah. What's the full name? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's a Ragnar. Um, Something broke. Yes. <laughs> I forgot. I love him as a character, yeah. but when he died, it, it dege- the whole storyline just sort of degenerated into nihilism when he died, and I just I, I stopped watching it. But if anyone can give me uh, a reason, I'll, I you know I'd, I'd start up again to finish the last the other seasons. But I just thought like if it's just if this is just gonna be more of this because that's the other problem is a lot of these series they start out really interesting and they wrestle with issues, but then over time they just sort of degenerate into nihilism, and I just. Yeah. You know, it's it's just discouraging, but because I love series and I love Vikings and stuff, and like you said, you know that that Christian monk character was a great contrast, but then oh, yeah. ultimately he was a failure. You know, and like, but oh, did, did, see, but here I I actually liked the new monk that came in. Well, not monk, but bishop. I actually liked him when he came in because uh, <laughs> right from the beginning, he's introduced. He's conducting a funeral. And then the very next thing is he's sleeping with one of the ladies who was at the funeral. But but the thing is, is that he is so deeply aggrieved by his own actions. The very next thing you do or you see him doing is dragging himself through thorns, asking for forgiveness. He's so human. He's so human that it's like. You, no, there you were feel. definitely good yeah. moments there, yeah. and, and even like moments when Ragnar was—you could see he was listening, you know. And and of course, if you know the end of the story, you know he can't end up there. But he would—you would really see moments of him listening to the monk and and drawing from it what what he would have to say, and and actually somewhat changing, you know. Uh, so yeah, no, there, I, I agree that there was a very much of a, you'd be, I'd be watching and I, I'm like, which side is it on? I don't know. I'm not sure. And <laughs> yeah. In some ways I think that, it, that does make a good, make a good story. And, and it, you know, cause it's, it's not about necessarily giving final answers. It's, it, you know, stories are meant to make you think through things and talk about them more. And there might be underlying answers, but you don't have to give answers to everything. And what you're pointing to is the ambiguity of of reality and and that's something as an evangelical i've had to also learn and and realize that yeah you know godly characters you know and again i all my bible stories all my heroes whether it's joshua or jehu or what have you you know the guys elijah guys that you would think you know these are like mighty heroes and a lot of evangelicals tend to think of them as holy and perfect it's like no, they're human and they have sins, and so all of my her- heroes, whether it's Joshua who has a tendency to become too violent, he has a violent temper that actually gets the better of him and almost ruins him. That doesn't mean that the violence he was supposed to visit upon the godless Canaanites was wrong. It's that he had to understand the difference between the righteous violence that Yahweh commanded him and him. Be- taking over control of that as if he's God himself to, to choose, right? That kind of thing. So, so um, yeah, I agree with you. And, 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 and I sometimes wondered if Christians might be offended or at it, but so far, no, they get it. They realize, no, yeah, you know, they're human. And so I have Elijah in my story, uh, Jezebel, Elijah has sort of post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. You know, mm. he's got a shaking hand 
that that starts to shake when he's getting in really tense situations, you know, because mm. he gets nervous and he has a fear of man. Yeah. Up until the end. Yeah. You know? And uh I love that because it makes yeah. him more it's human. It's a great you know? detail. And, yeah, Dad. I think yeah, it is. <laughs> it is very relatable. Yeah. Yeah. Think yeah. of when it comes to uh one one last point on Vikings, think of think of it as uh as David's fall and then what happens to his sons. That's exact. Yeah. That's exactly what's happening right now with it, with his it's sons. It's a tragedy. Yeah, it's a tragedy. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, have you caught up to all the latest seasons? No, I'm I'm a couple. Well, I'm up to the last season, but I'm several episodes behind right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because there's there's another great series called um, The Last Kingdom on Netflix. Highly recommended. Another, you know, another thing about the pagans versus christianity and in truth i honestly i believe it's based on uh cornwall's uh novels and he or cornwell he's a really excellent storyteller and it's a, you know it's roughly based on what happened but not exactly you know and um it's like the dane pagans versus the english christian and you know i think it ultimately it's it's got an ultimate negative picture of christianity versus paganism i think paganism is supposed to be more hearty and earthy and full of life and christianity is more abstract and you know bloodless that kind of a thing mm. i think that that's what ultimately but there's still a lot of truths in it i mean i love the series and you know sometimes the christians are are a little over the top in the way they're depicted but i'm not entirely against the you know what's going on in the story, you know, as, as the Danes also have to reconcile or this character has to reconcile with a King that's a Christian. And, and how does he deal with that? You know? Um, but it, 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 it at least wrestles with it in a way that I'm willing, it has the ambiguities that I'm willing to say, okay, I don't necessarily agree with everything what's in, in, in the story, but it, it makes me think a lot about life and reality and my own Christianity and how am I being consistent? That kind of a thing. While we're on cinema, I wanted to point out that you have several other movies out there because yeah. you had uh, Alleged. Um, yeah, Alleged is a, a, a mediocre Christian movie about the <laughs> monkey trial. Yeah, yeah it was, oh. you know, it's pretty good. It's, it's actually pretty good. It's, you know, it's not terrible. Let's put it that way. Uh, but also, I, you know, I, I wrote the original drafts of it but it got rewritten and changed as it went on. So, um, but uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And then I did the visitation, which was an adaptation of Frank Pretty's uh, best-selling novel. Yeah. And that one also, I wrote the original draft, but the, the, the director sort of took it over. He wasn't a Christian and I don't, I, I don't think he really understood it well enough. You know, I, I'm sorry to bad talk my own movies. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, but interestingly, um, Pretty's a good writer I, though. Yeah. And um, January 1, here's what you got to do. Everyone who's interested, go to my website, gadawa.com, G-O-D-A-W-A.com, and just, you know, sign up for the updates there. And and I will alert you to my new material and stuff that's coming out. January 1, I'm going to be starting a season of releasing a bunch of screenplays I've written oh, that you neat. can read on Amazon, digital wow. or books. And um, the, the, the excuse me, the series is called, every month I'm going to release excuse me, I'll be releasing three different scripts I've written. And um, you can you can get on my newsletter and I'll let you know all that and stuff. And even go to Amazon, you can pre-order it right now. But 
basically the goal is it's called screenplays as literature series. Now, most people don't read screenplays, you know, um, and it's a technical form because a screenplay is a blueprint for a movie. But the truth is, as a screenwriter, when I read screenplays, I love them because they're sh they're they're longer than a short story. And short stories are not enough for me, to be honest. But it's longer than a short story, but shorter than a novel. Sometimes novels are too long for me. So it's really a perfect middle story. It's a form of storytelling is all it is. And once you learn the basics of, of the format, it's a little unique in formatting, but not that it's not hard. It's not impossible to follow at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just different. Uh, you'll find another form of storytelling that actually, and, and my tagline is, read the script, imagine the movie. When you read it, you're you're like picturing the movie in your head because you know this is based, this is for a movie, right? And I, I just think the stories are so fascinating. I wanted to get them out and I think people are going to enjoy reading them. It's called Screenplays as Literature Series. And um, like I said, go to my website and you'll be updated when, when all the new ones come out. But the first ones are coming out on January 1. I've got three screenplays. But the uh, second release will include Alleged, the screenplay to Alleged. And I'm hoping to get the rights to put the screenplay of Two End All Wars, which is a little different than the movie, but still both of them are good. Um, but some of them, most of them screenplays are going to be movies, uh, screenplays I haven't been able to get produced. They're not, it's not unusual. It doesn't mean they're bad. It's uh, every screenwriter has a dozen screenplays that, it, you know, it's making a movie is impossible basically in Hollywood. Yeah, so yeah. you keep writing and, and you're lucky if one out of 10 gets made anyway. So, right. um, uh, but I decided, you know, these, they're sitting on the shelf and they're great stories. I would read, read through them. Like this is, I, I enjoy this. So. Um, I think it's going to be an exciting new a new way of of storytelling that people will love. That's awesome. Neat. I'm going to sign up. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get my plus, phone out here. <laughs> plus, you, plus, you also have some documentaries out there as well. Really? I do. I do some documentaries wow. that I'm actually proud of. Uh, one of them is called Faith of Our Fathers. It used to be called Wall of Separation, called Faith of Our Fathers. And you can get it on Amazon, I think, or Christian, whatever. It's about the Wall of Separation, the history. It's kind of like a PBS documentary. In fact, it got on PBS, ah. which oh. is kind of shocking because, you know, uh, it's not a communist viewpoint. Um, <laughs> so it's shocking that they let us on. But, you know, PBS always wants to be able to say, see, we have all viewpoints. So they want to point to one or two things while they've got 20 of the other side. <laughs> and mine was one of those that they picked. But I'm, I'm grateful for it, and uh, it tells the history of the concept of the separation of church and state and 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 how it's basically not biblical, um, but how the Founding Fathers understood it, and it's very historical. And Liev Schreiber actually does the narration of it. Very proud of that one. Um, and I also have a documentary on stem cell research that I think is still pretty relevant uh, in today's world, um, and you can, you can find that online somewhere, too. But uh, yeah, there's a few of those documentaries. Yeah, oh, cool. which it's awesome. And again, it, it's showing your diversity as a writer. Not only do you have novels out there and screenwrites, you also have documentaries out there. So it's pretty cool. And it shows my desperation as a writer. <laughs> I got to write all kinds of stories because I, I got to sell. I got to make some money. So, heck yeah, I'll do a documentary. Sure. Give me a money. I can relate to that, brother. I can relate, man. <laughs> Yeah, Gumby's actually a professional musician, so. Yeah, you got to diversify. I mean, you got to teach, you got to produce, you got to gig, you know what I mean? Yeah, I get it. Yeah, Not artists just don't understand it. They just don't get it. Yeah. Like, it's so funny, too, and I even hear Christians who, like, will, you know, you know, email me or something or Facebook me, you know, when I'm pitching some, selling my books, you know, and of course my books are Bible stories, right? And so, so they're like, 
Oh, so you're making money off the Bible, are you? <laughs> <laughs> how dare you? I, actually, I laugh. They don't realize like the, how foolish they look. It's like, like, so you really think that you really think that God wants you to work and not make money, and so you can't eat. I mean, what kind of fool are you? you know? um, and I usually don't address them because they're just it's they're so ignorant. I don't know what you know. What can I say that you know? But yeah. sometimes I'll just quote the Bible verse. You know, Paul says. Don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing the the, the uh, wheat. <laughs> right, and that was the justification for paying good teachers and preachers. You know, mm. and it's just like, come on, people. You know, okay, you want the word of God to tell you? Okay, then here's the word of God telling you that <laughs> you should pay for my uh, teachings and good storytelling. <laughs> nah, 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 you know, but it's sort of funny because it's like, you know, anyone who thinks like you're an artist and you're talking about money, well, yeah, you don't know what it's like. Uh, but the reality is, you need both. You know. It's yeah. not like we're whores or sometimes we feel like it. Right. But but um, it's not like we're just ranked for the money. But the truth is, the greatest writers in history struggled like Dickens. You know, he was struggling to oh, yeah. he would write anything in order to make some money, you know. And so it's like, so what? Michelangelo, you know, he had to only create the works of art that his patrons would pay him for. He could never do what he wanted to do. Yeah. So he was always for more money and how to make more money. You know, it's just it's life as an artist. And mm -hmm. but I think it's one of the. Honestly, I think it's one of the creative challenges that stimulates us to to actually create better. It's like yeah. whenever you have challenges or obstructions to you know doing whatever you want, uh, it's a challenge for you to be more creative in order to accomplish what you want. So and true. it makes you a better person, makes you a better artist, makes you you know you, the struggle is what makes you better. And so even though I hate it, all that struggle of trying to make the next amount of money is what has developed me as a writer so yeah i mean and i've ended up loving doing documentaries and stuff i don't love them as much as doing narrative stories but uh i love them for what they are you know mm -hmm. well it says something too when you can write something or produce something that you know is something that is actually representative of what you believe is important and not just it's like you know there's a lot of uh hey you know why don't we have a band that sounds like uh you know, yeah, yeah. in sync, but it's Christian <laughs> or a movie that's like that Valentine's Day movie, but it's Christian. But it, the challenge is seems to be finding your story and find, making it in a way that people would actually pay for it, which is a much like finer thread the needle, I think. Well, I mean, the Bible itself, uh, if you take the, uh, the King James Bible, people are always like, well, you know, and they go on and explain how everything Christian should be free, right? And I was like, <laughs> well, you do realize that every, buy, every time you buy a King James Bible, you're actually paying the royal family. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's it's true. It's one. true. To oh, this day. Wow. Oh, my to, goodness. To, to, to this say, day. Well, yeah, it's not, it's not just, and I would, wish I couldn't have to do it, but I have to to get the Bible. So Yeah. 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 To yeah. this day. If you buy a yeah. King James Bible, to this day, and this, and this, this, this is attributed um, – Cambridge University will, will stand by this and they will call you out if you quote it too much, too. <laughs> they will call you out. It happened uh, two years ago in England. They were quoting it too much and Cambridge University called the uh, the play. Oh, man. And they told them that they had to pay up. <laughs> don't sing happy birthday and don't quote the KGV. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and so to this day, if you buy a, key, a KJV, those, uh, those royalties go to the royal family. <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 everything christian should be free <laughs> <laughs> a, f a funny one by the way you mentioned uh, michelangelo uh they found a uh, a letter 
in the Vatican archive from Michelangelo. And it's and he went through and they he hadn't completed all of his works yet. And so yeah. he was asking for the for back pay before they were done for his laborers. And at the end of it it said it said, uh, please do this for Peter's sake. It was in reference to Saint Peter. <laughs> and they believe that's where the phrase came from for Pete's sake. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna abuse that one at church from now on. Well, as an artist, I think some of the greatest work that I ever did as a musician, as a drummer or a pianist, never yeah. got paid for. But the work that I do get paid for, I would say, oh, okay, yeah, I see why you want it. So here's that, here's that, here's that, here's that. But you know, something that I truly, truly value myself. I don't know. You know, that's just, that's, yeah, that's the struggle. But here's absolutely. But, but for me personally, um, not everyone's the same. Some artists do want to have just complete, total, unbridled uh, freedom. I actually don't because I've just had to learn no, no. the hard way. But yeah. over life, I've only, the best stuff I've created is always when I have boundaries. Like you can't do this. You can't, we don't have enough money or you can't do this. You can't do that. And it, it's. That's it's, so true. Or, or, or like we're paying you to do this story. It's not the one I wanted to do, but you know, but so the challenge is always, okay, I don't want to do this. Maybe, you know, that's not entirely the case because as an independent artist, I do have a certain amount of freedom where mm -hmm. I can turn things down. Uh, if you're in a studio system and you turn things down, you'll probably never get work again. Cause once you start turning anything down, they, so, so like, you got to do things you don't want to do and all that. But I mean, everyone does a certain amount of that things that you don't necessarily want to do, yeah. but by doing them, they forced me to say, okay, but how can I make this good anyway? Mm -hmm. How can I make it something that I like, even though I don't think it can be? Mm. And uh, that is, it, that challenge is the thing that has made me the better artist. You yeah. know, I think of you know, examples where, like I remember um, a story that, and this has happened more than once uh, after that. I've always had the sort of mentality of, I'm an R-rated Christian, you know, so, you know, I make, I make, arguments for r-rated movies not just all r-rated movies are okay but the point is is to show some explicit violence or yeah. language uh to capture reality maybe even sometimes to a certain degree a certain amount of explicit sexuality mm -hmm. uh obviously not all of it's okay pornography is not okay but but the nevertheless like the r-ratedness is more accurate picture of life mm -hmm. and it looks fake if you try if you just you know and i started out writing my novels that way they're more r-rated and stuff but you know over time, I realized that it, not because of morality, but because I just realized, well, Christians who are offended, then won't be reading it. And they, you know, they say, oh, I'm not going to recommend it. And I realized, you know, more Christians would appreciate it if it, it was just a little less harsh in the explicitness of the language. And so I actually went back and, and I edited all the novels and I just rewrote. I didn't cut things out. I just rewrote the explicitness and made it more implied. And, you know, I got to say, and this has happened on several of my movie scripts as well it's like i had this harsh language it's like oh we got to make it pg-13 so it's like okay so i went back and i'm like that sh that boundary condition that boundary mm -hmm. forced me to actually i came up with a more creative idea because of it wow. that was a better huh. story and that i i'd say more than half the cases in my my chronicles series was that too i i by becoming more veiled so to speak or more implied it actually is more creative and interesting and so, um, not for moral reasons, but just for demographics and sales, you know, but 
I feel like it's made me a better storyteller. And, you know, there's a classic example of, you know, in the uh, 40s, I think it was in Hollywood, you know, when they first had what they called the Hayes Code. You know, before the 40s, you know, actually the, the uh, movies were getting very racist and pornographic. It's surprising if you if you look into the history of it. Mm-hmm. And oh, the yeah. Hayes Code, which was, you know, the, uh, you know, it was when they first started, I think it was the Catholics started trying to, to, to you know, so we need some moral codes that is too explicit, whatever. But when they first initiated it, some of the, the 40s and the 50s is like the golden era of Hollywood because they 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 dealt they still dealt with the sins but they did it implied and that's why you've got some of the best scenes that are still remembered in history whether it's Casablanca yeah. or whatever because it's all this implied things actually end up becoming more interesting and creative and last longer and um, so I'm I still am, am capable of doing R-rated material but but I actually have come to appreciate that creative boundary of saying, okay, you know, deal with sins or evil, but you don't have to be as explicit yeah. as that. Yeah. And and so doing, or, or, you know, there are some movies that I did that I really, a couple movies that I didn't, you know, I didn't really want to do, but, but I did. And, um, you know, uh, well, Jezebel, believe it or not, was originally origin. If you, see the book cover it says to be a major motion picture originally i was hired to write a screenplay about elijah this was years ago and honestly i really didn't want to do it because you know um for various reasons let's just put it that way i don't want to i don't want to um talk about that but i didn't want to do it i wasn't all that interested i didn't think it would be successful anyway for various reasons but you know i needed the money at the time (laughs) and uh I did it. And then I thought, well, how can I make this something I like, you know, and I persuaded them to do my version of it. And it, it became Jezebel. It was started out as Elijah, you know, a story about Elijah. And I'm like, no, mm. that's not the story. Who can relate to a prophet anyway? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. if you want to, if you want more than Christians to appreciate this movie, who can relate to a guy who's trying to obey God? You know, that doesn't make a lot of sense to most people. But I said, a lot of people are interested in watching the story of of a of Scarface or Godfather, right? The fall, <laughs> rise and fall of a wicked queen. That's interesting to most people. Let's yeah. tell the story of Jezebel. And then lo and behold, I ended up developing that story and it became one of my best writings ever. And I was just so blessed that this, this last year, a year ago, I got the rights to uh, get the novel rights to it. And that's why I wrote the novel, Jezebel. Um, I, I almost didn't have them. And I'm so grateful that I've got them because it, it ends up being one of my most exciting. It's one of my favorite books um, that I've written. Oh, all right. Cool. Wow. So you're saying that you had to do it more like once upon a Deadpool, less Deadpool. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen that one, but is it good? Once so, upon a Deadpool? Yeah, so they, they PG-13 it. <laughs> the funny it's, part I, is... I, I the, saw the opener, how they did a little open clip to it, right? But I didn't watch the movie. Have you seen it? Is it a pretty good still as PG-13? Oh, I went back and watched it. I, I got tickets to the and I watched it in the theater. It was like, yeah. Because I, I, I thought that the dialogue, despite its its um, <laughs> its acidic comments, uh, I thought that it was written so well, I had to go back and I had to watch it as PG-13. And they incorporated it so well if you let's i'll put it to you this way if you thought that deadpool was fun but maybe a little over the top and you also enjoy the princess bride 
<laughs> You'll enjoy this. <laughs> All right, well, I'll check it out then. <laughs> because he recreates the scene from The Princess Bride with Fred Savage. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the part I saw. That's the part I saw. There, there's actually several of those scenes in there. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right yeah, so it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> so. Time. Yep. Time <laughs> All right, so. Again, this is awesome. I love hanging out with you. Yes, this it is, was. This yeah, is so I'm much fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Me too. Still, still, top what? <clears throat> top two favorite guests? Actually, as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're my Please favorite. Stop. I think you're my favorite. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll call you every time I get a new book. When I release my scripts, I'll call you guys. Awesome. And nice. you'll, each, you'll each get free scripts. In fact, any, if you don't have Jezebel by now, just email me and I'll I'll give you a free Jezebel. Oh, per, I don't have it yet. It's Perfect. Be digital, nice. If that's okay. No, no, that's fine. I'm I'm a huge Kindle person. Um, okay. uh, in fact, I, I just I just grabbed a regular Kindle because I wanted more of the black and white because I was tired of reading on side of the, uh, the the colored screen. So I just I just bought myself a regular Kindle. So <laughs> I have issues with paper cuts, so I like the digital copies too. Yeah. <laughs> so send me send me your emails. Because I, I need to use the email in order to send it to you. Okay. So send me your emails that you want me to send it to, and I'll give you each a free copy of Jezebel. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you. I will cherish it. <laughs> yes. And the yeah. same with every every time I'm on. That's my payment is, you know, I'll give you this. I'll send you the scripts I have, and we talk about the scripts when they come out in January. So Yeah. Oh, I appreciate yeah. it. And again, like, like I said, I, I, I endorse you to all branches of the church because I think your historical context and the fact that you can paint the culture you can paint the the vocations and your research that goes behind every one of them and the appendices and the separate uh companion books are just awesome so yeah so i i endorse you to like everybody (laughs) so and to conclude then you know like i said if you go to godawa.com you'll have all kinds of cool information you can find out about all my series I've, i've got a lot of information on it i've got free materials free scholarly articles cool artwork I really wanted to make an interesting website. So you'll, you can find a lot of free, interesting stuff there. Or if you just want to go straight to checking out the books more directly, uh, everything's on Amazon in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. So just, I'm exclusively on Amazon. Go there. Yep. So if you want to hang out for a second, we're going to end the show. Um, Brian, any last words? I already said them. Thanks All for right. having me on. Appreciate you guys. Keith? Thanks, Brian. I can't wait to read so much stuff from you. So. Yeah. Gumby. Hey, Brian, thank you for your work. Thank you for restoring uh, balance to the force. (laughs) (laughs) To the Christian force. That's right. That's That's right. right. (laughs) Thank you. And please catch us out on virtually every social media platform, including Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Tumblr. It's if it's social media, we're on it. So remember to catch catch us, and uh, nothing is taboo over brew. Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. All right, good night. Good night.